Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. This week, a special edition of Sound Medicine, where we are in the war on cancer and where we're heading. There are very few times where you get to accomplish something that had never been done before. We'll speak with a doctor who figured out how to cure one form of cancer nearly every time and what that first patient recalls as well. In the early 1970s, when you heard the word cancer, it was pretty synonymous with dying. Plus, where precision medicine fits in. This is a very, very young field. It's one that I think makes sense to people, which is why it's exciting. And how recruiting the immune system is already working. And we'll visit a unique bank that's paying real dividends for cancer patients. And it made me feel very special and very happy for potentially so many other patients. And yet, why it'll take more than just amazing science. A special look at cancer, past and present, coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. It may be the scariest word your doctor can use, cancer. And even though part of you knows that many people now survive a diagnosis of cancer, another part of you cringes when you hear me say it. When I was training in cancer medicine, one patient in particular asked me, she said, I'm willing to go on with my chemotherapy and uh, my treatment, but I need to know what it is that I'm battling. That's Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee describing his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, as an attempt to answer the question, what is cancer? That Pulitzer Prize winner is now the basis for this month's three-part PBS documentary produced by Ken Burns. In collaboration with that production, we're devoting this full hour to cancer, with a bit of history, a lot of new science, and some very encouraging news. Let's start with the history. Dr. Mukherjee recalls a story not that long ago of Fanny Rosenau. A breast cancer advocate who, in 1950s, called up the New York Times, and she said, I'd like to place an advertisement for uh, survivors of breast cancer. And the society editor of the New York Times got on the phone and she said, you know, Ms. Rosenau, we can't print the words breast and cancer in the New York Times. What if we said this was a, a survivor's group for women with diseases of the chest wall? And to move from that moment to a moment today when you cannot open the New York Times without the mention of the word cancer, um, was, is an enormous uh, move. And, of course, part of that was facilitated, catalyzed, by Nixon's declaration of war on cancer. When President Nixon announced in 1971 that the nation was launching a war on cancer, he modeled it after the Manhattan Project and later the Apollo Project. The thinking was that a huge commitment of the nation's will and enormous research dollars would lead to a cure for what was then thought to be a single disease. If only it were that simple. One physician who recalls that time vividly is Dr. Larry Einhorn. He was in the news in the 1990s as Lance Armstrong's physician, but it was 20 years earlier than that that he came up with a combination drug therapy that raised the cure rate for testicular cancer from 5% 
all the way up to 90% today. He told me about the first patient who received that new therapy, John Cleland. Because metastatic testicular cancer affects young patients, despite the fact that he was in several months of dying of his disease if untreated, he actually looked pretty healthy. And for John, uh, he had testis cancer, he had surgery for his disease, and then the tumor came back in his lungs, and he went through one type of chemotherapy that failed to cure his disease. He went through a second type of chemotherapy, which also failed to cure his disease, and a third type of chemotherapy, which also failed to cure his disease. And so when we saw him for platinum-based chemotherapy, uh, he had no other options other than this then-experimental drug. So cisplatin, the uh, platinum-based chemotherapy, had only been used as a standalone chemo drug without much success. Is, is that correct before that time? Uh, yes. Uh, it was used in many different tumors, including testicular cancer, as a single agent. And it had some, quote-unquote, activity much like John Cleland's three previous types of chemotherapy, in that tumors did shrink to some degree, but that duration of remission lasted for only a couple of months before the cancer came back, and eventually those early patients that got single-agent platinum succumbed to their disease. So what made you decide to combine uh, the cisplatin with uh, bleomycin and vinblastine? Why, what made you think it would even work, and why you wanted to try it? Well, Back in 1974, and this is also true in 2015, when we use chemotherapy, the principles of combination chemotherapy are we look at drugs that have known single-agent activity, we look at drugs that are synergistic, in other words, one plus one equal more than two uh, with a super additive effect, we look at drugs that have different mechanisms of action as to how they kill cancer cells, and we look at drugs that do not have overlapping toxicity. And before platinum was around, vinblastine and bleomycin was a two-drug chemotherapy regimen that clearly had activity and, in fact, even cured a small percentage of patients with metastatic testicular cancer. So platinum was an experimental drug. Vinblastine and bleomycin was an established FDA-approved two-drug regimen. So it seemed logical then, and in fact it would now also, to combine platinum with this already established two-drug regimen. So what happened to John Cleland? What was his response to the, that combination? Well, John responded to chemotherapy, and after the first three weeks when we repeated his chest X-ray, all of his tumors were gone. And that caused a great deal of immediate excitement, as you can imagine, but you also have to realize that John had been through three previous types of chemotherapy with some minor brief benefit, and one didn't know at the three-week level whether we achieved a remission that would be temporary or whether a miracle had happened and he actually had been cured with fourth-line chemotherapy. I think sometimes when people who are outside of cancer treatment think, okay, so you get this drug and then everything works and it's great, but cisplatin was indeed a lifesaver, but it was not an easy drug to tolerate for your patients at first, was it? It was a terrible drug as far as acute side effects, and there were no drugs that produced more nausea and vomiting than did cisplatin. And this was in a time in 1974 when we didn't have the more effective drugs to combat chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. So in 1975, it becomes clear that the results are sustainable, and you describe how you felt at an oncologist meeting walking up to the podium like my own walk on the moon. 
Well, it's, it's true, and, and by that I mean that whether you're in science or engineering or mathematics or any other field, uh, there are very few times where you get to do the quote-unquote walk on the moon where you could accomplish something that had never been done before, and that really is going to be the uh, quintessential uh, uh, pinnacle of your uh, career, in, uh, in, in this case, in medicine. Did you think at the time you found the cure? Yes. Uh, again, we were young and dumb, so to speak, at that time. And we thought, well, gee, if this worked in a tough disease like testicular cancer, surely we could use this same three-drug regimen for breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, and other common diseases. Uh, but it didn't take long to realize that this was a unique three-drug regimen that was specifically effective and curative for testicular cancer. And although platinum remains a very important drug 40 years later for 12 different types of tumors, none of these other tumors had the dramatic and spectacular long-lasting results that we see with testicular cancer. Yeah, so how is it used today? How widespread and how well accepted, I guess, is it? Well, platinum is chemotherapy, and in the year 2015, we're looking at personalized medicine with molecular targeted therapy, which are non-chemotherapy. But here we are 40 years later, and platinum remains first-line therapy in non-small cell lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, head and neck cancer, bladder cancer, cervical cancer, cancer of the esophagus, ovarian cancer. So it actually remains first-line therapy chemotherapy 40 years later in a total of 12 different types of tumors. There's no other drug like platinum, including non-chemotherapy molecular targeted agents that has such a wide panoply of activity against so many diverse types of tumors. One last question about those days in the 1970s. When you reflect on them now, does the accomplishment that you made sink in? How do you look back on those days? Well, uh, I think I look back on those days when I get to communicate and see patients that we treated in an earlier era where patients came to us literally from all over the country and later from all over the world with the idea that they had metastatic cancer, that generally speaking, this disease meant that these patients would die within one year of the diagnosis of their disease. And we get to see them uh, healthy, productive members of society. They're married. They come in with their children. And it's, it's awe-inspiring as far as what we try to do with cancer research in general, namely that if we can cure this one disease, there is optimism that similar types of success stories can be made and are being made in other types of tumors as well. And coming up later in the program, Dr. Einhorn will be back to talk about what's being done to help long-term survivors of cancer who are still dealing with some side effects decades after their treatment. John Cleland, that first patient he spoke about, is one of those long-term survivors. And he recalls those early years with Dr. Einhorn. I was a student at Purdue University. I was in my ninth semester. I was an animal science student. And um, uh, I had seven hours to go in my ninth semester there to finish up. My wife was a senior finishing up her last year also. Okay, so you're babies. Uh, pretty much so, yes. <laughs> yeah, and here you are facing something that no one should, should have to face. I mean, we're, we're talking death. Yeah, particularly back in the 1970s, early 1970s, when you heard the word cancer, it was pretty synonymous with, with dying. So it was pretty scary. 
Yeah. So when this idea was proposed by Dr. Einhorn to give you this combo, um, what was your thought process then? Um, it wasn't really totally unexpected that he would try something. He, he had told me just a few minutes earlier that he didn't think I would make it. And um, I'd sat there quietly for maybe two or three, four minutes, I don't know, and just trying to get my thoughts together and, and calm down a little bit when he finally asked me if I wanted to try a, a new chemotherapy. And uh, we decided to go ahead and give it a shot. Uh, nothing to lose. How soon did you know it was working? Um, <laughs> that's really a very interesting story. Uh, I'd received my first injection of uh, cisplatinum on October 7th, 1974, and I had a shot every day for five days. And I was out of the hospital then, and on October 20th, the Sunday, October 20th, I had about 104, 104 and a half fever, and I was just deathly ill, and my wife and a couple of friends brought me from Lafayette down here to the IU hospital and, and, and checked me in and they got the temperature under control, and that was late at night, about midnight, and the next morning I had a chest x-ray, and, and later that afternoon, um, there on October 21st, is when I found out my chest film was clear. So in just two weeks' time, basically, I went from having a chest x-ray that looked like uh, Swiss cheese to, to one that was pretty clear. When did you start to physically feel better? So it was really quite a while. It wasn't really until early 1975 that I started to feel, feel much better. Um, and then it was just a very slow, gradual uh, basis. Um, I'm probably still feeling better today than I ever did back then. So <laughs> I'm still getting better, let's put it that way. And when you look back on your life, because it was remarkable. I mean, you're in the, the history books, <laughs> the medical <laughs> history books. Um, do you think you and your wife have a different perspective about what life means? Oh, yes. Um, say we don't get up very often and not appreciate the sunshine or the cloudiness or just the ability to get out of bed and, and have some decent health and do, do things we want to do. And it takes something really major to, to bother me anymore. And uh, uh, say life is good. Life's real, real good. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your Sound Medicine stat is 33. If your waistband is getting too tight, those itchy indentations around your midsection might be the least of your concerns. British researchers brought together a bunch of women over 50 for a study and asked, Now then, what's your skirt size, and what was it when you were 25? They then followed the women for a few years. It turns out that after the age of 25, each time their skirt size increased by a size per decade, their risk of getting breast cancer after menopause went up 33%. 33? This isn't a matter of larger skirts not preventing cancer as well as smaller ones. Instead, body fat around the waist seems to create internal trouble that leads to breast cancer. Now, I'm just the messenger here. I don't make it my business to tell strangers that their clothes are getting snug. But if you don't listen to me, listen to your outfits. They might be trying to help you. That was the number 33, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up. Immunotherapy has been called the next big thing in cancer treatment for a while now. We'll check in with one of the leaders in the field. This is a very, very young field. It's one that I think makes sense to people, both doctors 
and patience, which is why it's exciting. But we're still in the very early days of this process. And so, you know, right now, a fraction of the time, we probably understand the typo and we have a really good drug directed against it, but we're still learning. And later, a visit to a one-of-a-kind bank that's giving real hope to breast cancer patients. And it made me feel very special and very happy for potentially so many other patients. You're listening to a special edition of Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency issued an alert this week that illegal use of the opioid fentanyl is on the rise as dealers and users are stealing it, then blending it with heroin and selling it. Fentanyl is more potent than morphine and can be lethal even at low levels. Because it is one of the most commonly used drugs in anesthesia, fentanyl is relatively easy to obtain. The DEA is concerned about law enforcement personnel accidentally coming in contact with fentanyl on the streets during the course of drug busts. Ebola vaccines will be on the agenda for both the U.S. FDA and the World Health Organization in the next few months. Ebola has so far claimed about 10,000 lives in Africa, but only a handful of cases have been reported in the U.S., Spain and Britain. The World Health Organization plans to decide by August whether it makes sense to come up with a mass vaccination program to prevent another widespread outbreak. A study out of Brazil this week suggests that mothers who breastfeed for more than a year increase the chances that their baby will grow up to be a smarter and wealthier adult. Researchers in Brazil found that prolonged breastfeeding increased the intelligence of the baby into adulthood, and those results held true regardless of the socioeconomic class a child was born into. Bad news this week for seniors who drink diet sodas. Researchers from the American Geriatric Society spent 10 years following 800 people over the age of 65. People who drank a daily diet soda gained three times the amount of fat around their waist than those who did not drink diet sodas. Middle-age spread is thought to be an increased risk for heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. One of the hottest areas in cancer research is using the body's own immune system to fight cancer. Sound Medicine contributor Peter Droppert explores how a new immunotherapy treatment works and who it might help. Every day, our immune system recognizes foreign invaders and destroys them. The problem is, cancer cells resemble normal, healthy cells, so it's hard for the immune system to identify and target them. That's why there's a new focus on helping the body do a better job of detection, so the immune system can do what it's supposed to do. Ultimately, I think our goal is to overcome the use of chemotherapy radiation, which blasts everything healthy and malignant cells. And so it's extremely exciting to target the tumour cells themselves by using our own immune system to attack the cancers. That's Dr. Catherine Bollard, who leads a cancer immunology research programme at Children's National in Washington, D.C. I think it's so exciting because I see it as a way forward to how it will revolutionise the treatment of haematologic cancers. So how do you harness the immune system to fight cancer? One innovative way is to reprogram the body's T-cells. These are a type of white blood cell that seeks out and destroys foreign invaders. Think of it like giving the immune system a software upgrade. 
you remove T cells from a patient's blood, genetically modify them in the laboratory, allow them to multiply until you have hundreds of millions, a process that can take a few weeks, then later infuse those modified T cells back into the patient. Now, by being able to see a specific protein or antigen on the surface of cancer cells, the T cells can kill them. Not only do we have an army of T cells that we can put into the patient to fight, but that army will expand as needed. So in patients with very small amounts of disease, that army of T cells can stay pretty small. But in a patient with a very large amount of leukemia, for example, that army of T cells really has to expand to get rid of all those cancer cells. So that flexibility is one of the most powerful things about this particular technology. My name is Stephen Grupp. I'm the Director of Translational Research at Children's Hospital Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. These reprogrammed T cells are commonly referred to as CAR T cells. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. It's the engineered protein that enables T cells to attack cancer cells that have a specific marker. Clinical trials with CAR T cell therapies are currently underway. The most promising results seen to date have been in the treatment of blood cancers. In particular, a type of leukemia called acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL for short. In a clinical trial sponsored by Novartis and the University of Pennsylvania, CAR T-cell therapy was given to children who were extremely sick with ALL and who had either failed previous treatments or were no longer responding to them. 39 children have received CAR T-cell therapy at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Of the patients that we've treated so far, 92% of the patients have gone at one month into a complete remission. And that what we mean by complete remission is that there's no sign of their cancer. Some of these children have relapsed. In other words, the treatment no longer works. But in others, it may provide long-term disease control. One way to look at this is that of the patients that are in remission at one month, three-quarters of them are still in remission six months later. But why is this data so impressive? The reason why we're excited about these results is that these patients don't have any other treatment possibilities. Most of them have disease that is not under control with any other kind of treatment. And to have 92% of those patients in a complete response and to have that maintained in a large fraction of the patients is nearly unprecedented and very, very exciting for our group, for this group of patients, and for the possibility that engineered T-cells might be a very powerful treatment for cancer. So many of these patients probably would have otherwise died. Many of these patients would have died without this therapy. There's no question about that. Most of the trials of CAR T-cell therapy are being conducted at centres that do bone marrow transplants. They're the standard of care for many blood cancers, despite the significant risk of death and long-term complications. We don't yet know the full potential of CAR T-cell therapy, I have been in this business for 20 years, and I can tell you that I've never seen anything like this. And it's even possible that in the future, it might replace a transplant in some patients. I am a pediatric oncologist who does bone marrow transplant for a living. My fondest hope is that we may actually be able to substitute CAR T-cell therapy for bone marrow transplant, at least for patients with this particular kind of leukemia. So the, the side effects of this particular therapy, while occasionally significant in some patients, are much less significant than bone marrow transplant. That's not to say that CAR T-cell therapy doesn't come without risks. Again, Dr. Bollard. The caveat is, you know, when you really rev up the immune response, there is some toxicity associated with that. It's why CAR T-cell therapy is, for now, only given in a specialised centre at a hospital where patients can be monitored and any side effects quickly treated. Given its promise, 
Many pharmaceutical and biotech companies are looking to bring CAR T-cell therapies to market. Dr. Rainier Brenchens from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York is a scientific founder of one of these, Juno Therapeutics. It's really a, a heartwarming story and it's an incredible experience to have one of your own patients that was basically doomed to die, make it to transplant and run into them in the hallways two years later. It's fantastic. He says CAR T-cell therapy could be effective in many cancers, not just blood cancers such as ALL. I think that the current iteration of CAR T-cell therapy is a little bit like a Model A Ford. And ultimately, we're looking for a Ferrari. So the proof of principle is in there, but there's a lot of room to make these cells better. So they won't just be able to eradicate ALL in some cases, but they'll be able to eradicate lung cancers, colon cancers, et cetera, as long as we can identify appropriate target antigens. Dr. Grupp says this could be a game changer and a revolution in cancer treatment. If we can replicate the success that we've seen in leukemia in other kinds of cancers, that would completely change the face of cancer therapy. At the moment, CAR T-cell therapy is a personalized medicine. You take the T-cells from a patient, modify them, then give them back. But the next step might be to make CAR-T more readily accessible, so that a doctor could simply take a package of T-cells out of a freezer, defrost them, and give them to any patient. Dr. Julianne Smith is a vice president at Paris-based Selectis, a biopharmaceutical company working on this approach. We think that if we really want to get the product out to a large number of people, it may be the best way to go in the sense that we can produce from one healthy donor enough patient doses, if you would, to treat hundreds of patients instead of taking the cells from the, the patient, modifying them, and then just having one patient dose at the end of this whole prolonged process. The other advantage to this process would be that the T cells come from healthy donors instead of someone who's been receiving chemotherapy, which may make them more robust to begin with. So we find that at the end of our process, what we get out is very consistent product, and we think this will make a big difference then in going on to treat the patients. In the future, multiple CAR T-cell therapies may be available. So how will doctors choose one over the other? Dr. Krishna Komanduri is director of the Adult Stem Cell Transplant Program at the University of Miami. Obviously, as a scientist and as a physician, I want to see the best possible therapies reach my patients. But in the real world, I think a constellation of factors between efficacy, toxicity, and then, of course, cost and value will, will ultimately determine, I think, who the winners are uh, in this field. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Peter Droppert. Peter Droppert is an independent radio producer based in Miami. He writes about cancer drug development for Biotech Strategy Blog. We'll put a link at our website. You can find it by going to soundmedicine.org. Where are the biggest hopes for the future of treating cancer? Well, one of today's most promising fields is precision medicine, using our individual genetic makeup to determine which drugs are best for our bodies. It's been 15 years since the first human genome was mapped in the year 2000. That single genome took 10 years, $3 billion, and scientists all around the globe to map. And map is a great word for what's being done. If you're an explorer in a new world, it's important to draw a map for others to follow. Dr. Brian Schneider, a breast cancer oncologist and leader in precision medicine, says that one genome gave researchers an important blueprint in understanding cancer. Cancer is, by definition, a disease of the genome or a disease of the blueprints. So what we see happening in cancer cells is that they actually acquire mutations. 
And so what I visually think of a mutation to be is simply a typo in the blueprint. So if you get typos in the wrong place or too many of them, you simply can't read the blueprints anymore. So the cells become confused and they start to misbehave. So they no longer respect boundaries. They start to travel in places they shouldn't. And that is simply the essence of cancer. And the essence of many patients' cancers can be found in the tumor. The first step in treating his patients with precision medicine is to know precisely what is driving the cancer cells to multiply. And that happens once a tumor is cut out and sent to a special lab. When we think about how a tumor becomes a tumor, uh, one way that it becomes a tumor is by having a, a typo. And if you remember a few years ago when uh, Toyota had the uh, stuck accelerator pads, this is very similar. The uh, typo can actually cause the accelerator to be stuck for these cancers. And so there are a host of these typos or mutations that have been well characterized over time. And we know that there are specific ones that drive the cancer. And we also know there are drugs that have been built specifically for these pathways or these gas pedals. And so in some ways, what we do is play a game of go fish. We, we try to find the driver mutation. And then from historical information and science, we try to match it to the drugs that would intuitively try to block this pathway. Sounds simple, huh? Get the information, match the tumor to the best drug, and watch it work. Not so fast, says Dr. Schneider. This is a very, very young field. It's one that I think makes sense to people, both doctors and patients, which is why it's exciting. But we're still in the very early days of this process. And so, you know, right now, a fraction of the time, we probably understand the typo and we have a really good drug directed against it, but we're still learning. And as a good example, sometimes the typos are important in a given cancer type. For breast cancer, HER2 is a really important typo, and we have really good drugs that are very effective. But interestingly, sometimes that same HER2 aberration in, say, a lung cancer may not predict the same success. And so we've got a lot of work to do to understand where these typos matter and what drugs are going to best block these typos. So after the tumor is studied and understood as much as possible, the next step in the process is a tumor board. That's a group of physicians and researchers who get together to decide what treatment offers the best chance of success in both quantity and quality of life. So this is not a perfect world, and cancer is certainly a, a very complicated disease. And oftentimes what we'll see are mutations or changes that may be modestly interesting, or we have more than one. And so we have to sit down as a group to try to decide which of these make the most sense. And this becomes a very, very complicated process, which is why I think having as many good minds in the room as possible, the better. And number one, it's picking the drug that we think has the highest level of likelihood to work. But we also have to think about the patient too. Many patients come in with pre-existing problems whether they be comorbidities like diabetes or other medical problems that may impact what a drug is going to do to them. And many of them also have underlying conditions that were brought on by prior drugs that they had received for their cancer. And so really it's an integration not only of trying to pick the drug that we think is going to work best, 
but also the one that's going to cause the least harm in its path. Some of the more complicated ones are when we see a couple of mutations or changes that have a modest degree of association with a variety of drugs in clinical trials, and then it's really trying to sort out which is going to be best for that patient, and that's where the energy becomes amazing. We, uh, we start really uh, delving into where is the clinical trial? How far will that patient have to travel? Do they have kids at home? Is this going to be an issue? Do they have neuropathy? Because this drug causes neuropathy, this drug does not. And so those cases, the energy is amazing. Lack of big data. You know, the big studies we report about on sound medicine, those that include thousands of patients proving that a drug works well. With really cool technology comes inherent problems. And I think, you know, one of the uh, really neat things about personalized medicine is we don't think about averages anymore. We're not taking a thousand patients and finding the average drug for the average person. And so that in and of itself, I think, is really cool. The downside of that is now we don't have big numbers of patients to study specific drugs. And so you can't at a given institution or at a given center understand whether a marker works really good for a drug. And so what this is going to require is an amazing collaboration across the country to really try to compile data from our patients to see how they're doing moving forward. So I think the frustrating part of precision therapeutics is that because it's so tailored, we really have to play as team players in this now. And so I think we're all very hopeful that that will happen. But I think the major thing to take home with this is that we now have the technology to do this. So now it becomes just a question of mathematics, informatics, of really understanding how these different typos, how these different genetic changes will ultimately match with the best drug for the patient. So I think the biggest part of the mountain has been climbed, uh, but we are very, very early in the days. That was Dr. Brian Schneider, an associate professor of medicine and the Vera Bradley investigator in oncology at the IU School of Medicine. We'll have more of this special edition of Sound Medicine after a break. Sound Medicine's coverage of advances in cancer research and therapies is presented in part by Roche Diagnostics, doing now what patients need next. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to this special edition of Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. We're spending this full hour talking about cancer, where we've come from, and where we're heading next. Earlier in the program, you heard from Dr. Larry Einhorn, who developed a multi-drug therapy that he describes as his own walk on the moon, since it rocketed the survival rate for testicular cancer from 5% to 90%. Dr. Einhorn says that 40 years ago, the main issue for men dealing with testicular cancer was... Could they cure anyone? At the time, most patients died within a year of diagnosis. Now he is focusing his attention on helping those long-term survivors of cancer deal with some of the side effects that still linger from their aggressive treatment all those years ago. These complications range from numbness and tingling in the hands and the feet and painful areas in the hands and the feet, ringing in the ears, decreased tearing, second type of different malignancies due to the chemotherapy, cardiovascular complications, 
And this is an area that our pediatric oncology colleagues have done a much better job than we have as adult oncologists, namely looking at late complications of chemotherapy in people who are cured of their disease. And quite honestly, in 1974, we didn't have a cohort of patients with solid tumors who actually were cured of their disease where you can even think about late complications of therapy. What kind of studies can be done or what sort of research is being done to improve this quality of life for these long-term cancer survivors? Well, we have a current National Cancer Institute research project that we're doing with several other institutions where we are looking at quantitating the issue as to what percentage of these men uh, have durable side effects as far as hearing problems, ringing in the ears, and neuropathy. We're looking at factors that can influence this as far as personal habits, but most importantly, in this modern genomic age, which didn't exist in the 1970s, we can actually get a sample of blood and see if they have a particular mutation that leads to the development of these types of long-term side effects. And if we find this, this would be of tremendous value, not to our current patients, but all future patients in predicting who is going to have these type of problems and trying to do things to combat this. And more importantly, if we are lucky as a scientific society, finding a mutation is step one. Developing a drug to block that mutation and prevent those side effects is step two. And it is possible. But first, we have to do our fishing expedition, if you will, and find out in thousands of patients uh, using informatics as to whether we can find specific mutations that actually lead to the development of these complications compared to a group of patients who have no complications and have perhaps a different protective mutation. Will this be a problem in the future, these long-term complications? Because I was wondering if this standard conventional chemotherapy, and then you have the the targeted agents that are coming along. Um, Do they cause the same hearing loss and ringing in the ears and tingling in the fingers and toes and neuropathy that the more standard chemotherapy like cisplatin does? They do not cause the type of side effects as cisplatin does, and they cause less acute side effects during therapy. But I think we've learned when we alter certain biological systems, whether it's with surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or the newer molecular targeted agents, it's probably naive to think that we're only producing beneficial effects without producing harmful effects. And the challenge is to document what those long-term harmful effects are, and the bigger challenge is to figure out how to combat them. Dr. Larry Einhorn, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Larry Einhorn is the Livestrong Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the Indiana University Simon Cancer Center. Another innovation in cancer research is a unique bank in which the depositors are healthy women who want to make a difference. Sound Medicine Sandy Rope has more. It's a regular day at the Komen Tissue Bank in Indianapolis. KTB volunteer Jessica Nordoff is preparing medical follow-up letters. It's checking up with them since they had been donors before. Meanwhile, in the KTB lab, scientists go about their routine of studying normal breast tissue. It all seems pretty ordinary, 
But what's happening here is very special. That's because the Komen Tissue Bank, which opened in 2007, is the only repository in the world for normal breast tissue and its matched serum, plasma, and DNA. Up until this time, people were trying to get normal tissue by taking it two centimeters away from the tumor. That's Dr. Anna Maria Storniolo, executive director of the KTB and professor of clinical medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Two centimeters away from a cancer, molecularly speaking, can't possibly be really normal. Early on, doctors also took tissue from breast reduction samples, which turns out is not typical tissue. A woman who's had a breast reduction is having that because their breast is disproportionately large compared to the rest of her body. So although it's not malignant, it is technically not a normal breast. By studying what is normal and comparing it to abnormal tissue, researchers hope to find a cure for breast cancer. So in a methodical way, they're trying to collect a source of normal tissue that represents the American female population through a spectrum of age, ethnicity, and menopausal status. To do that, KTB organizes breast tissue collection days a few times a year. Researcher Natasha Marino and lab manager Teresa Matheson prepare for the next collection. Which kind of slides we, did we take last time? Uh, we took the frame slides that are used on the microscope and then also the superfrost slides to do an H&E sting. Around 200 women typically donate during a collection day, and it takes about the same number of volunteers to run the event. Participants register online and have the procedure conducted by a doctor in a clean environment, usually at a hospital. Lisa Miller was one of the first women to donate tissue in Indianapolis several years ago. It didn't necessarily hurt like a, a, a sting. And, you know, the, the team that, that actually conducts this, you just feel so special. And, and you are special. I mean, you're given a huge piece of your, your own body within, you know, a very wonderful setting that you know is going to benefit. Donors don't receive any money or medical information, just the gratification of knowing they are advancing science. The tissue is immediately processed at the time of donation and later stored in secure KTB freezers. Researchers around the world may request samples to study. In return, they are required to submit their finished work and publish papers. That data gets entered into a virtual tissue bank and is connected back to the individual samples. Research involving Miller's tissue has become more helpful than she originally thought. That's because within two years of donating, she learned she developed breast cancer. I was very afraid, um, and it, it hadn't really hit me as to what that could potentially be because at the time I was really looking at my own mortality. And as things progressed and chemo went on, I understood what was getting ready to happen with what the tissue, the two different types of tissue could really do. And it made me feel very special and very happy for potentially so many other patients. Miller is one of 12 donors who've been diagnosed with breast cancer out of more than 4,000 donors to date. As unfortunate as that news was, it got scientists like KTB researcher Marino thinking about that tissue. 
She explains what initially looked normal under a microscope was actually in a precancerous stage and couldn't have been completely cancer-free. But looking inside the cells, so the microscopic level, uh, those cells present already the small alteration, the first alteration that can lead to cancer development. Now that researchers have specimens of the precancerous tissue, Marino is optimistic about identifying some factors that can cause the mutation in the cells. That information could be key to understanding the evolution of the disease. Meanwhile, other researchers are using the normal tissue to study how different factors like obesity, insulin regulation, and reproductive changes relate to breast cancer risks. Dr. Storniolo says the most immediate outcome of the current work involves the DNA signature of triple negative breast cancer, an aggressive type of cancer that is difficult to treat. And there are some clues in terms of which genes those are that are turned on, and um, our investigators are taking it to the next step and looking at which pathways those genes are involved in and then which drugs can be used to alter those pathways. Researchers have already published 19 papers from those tissue samples. The KTB hopes scientists will build on each other's data. While research continues, so does the push to get more women to consider donating their tissue. Four-year cancer survivor Lisa Miller highly recommends it to other women. Because I have two daughters, and there's a lot of women out there that have daughters, mothers, aunts. This is what we need in order to eradicate the disease, and it can be done. For Sound Medicine, I'm Sandy Rowe. We've put a link to the Komen Tissue Bank at our website, soundmedicine.org, and that's where you can find out how to volunteer or donate your healthy breast tissue. And finally this week, we've talked a lot about the science of moving toward a cure for various cancers, but that's not the only ingredient. It takes money and political will as well. Recently, I sat down with two regular guests here on Sound Medicine, Dr. David Flockhart, a pharmacogeneticist at the IU School of Medicine who is in the midst of his own fight with brain cancer, and his very good friend, Dr. Eric Meslin, director of the IU Center for Bioethics. I asked them about what they believe it will take to complete this war on cancer once declared by President Richard Nixon. Uh, God love him. Richard Nixon was sort of reviled and praised for his claim in the early 70s that cancer was going to be beaten. We're going to take a military approach to it, throw a lot of money and all of the metaphor that, that went with that. And many believe it or not, criticized Nixon for that outlandish claim. It was analogous to Jim Watson saying, we're going to map and sequence the genome in 10 years with a bunch of money. You don't do that in science. And I think the jury is coming in that not just Nixon, but the idea that cancer is an important issue and needs attention. Uh, the evidence is that the U.S. has been interested, very committed to it. 
The National Cancer Institute has a separate budget from the entire NIH. The entire It's one of the National Institutes of Health, but it, it has its own budget. It also has its own advocates. It has its own members of Congress that people know who to go to. Now, having said all that, you might have expected for that war to be won or at least the troops to be returned, so to speak, but it hasn't happened. And some of the reasons are scientific. We would have expected that the discoveries we made in testicular cancer could be translated directly to the other cancers. And guess what? We haven't. Whatever the reasons might be, we're in this messy, messy world where there's a lot of competition for federal dollars. David, what are some of the kind of challenges or concerns that you have as a scientist and as a cancer patient in terms of public policy where you say, you know, we really need to improve? The most effective form of therapy is just caring, just being on top of the matter and so forth. And I still think that's true, but the, the implementation of that doesn't happen well in cancer in general. So, for example, to contrast it with diabetes, there are diabetes management programs where you, you get the whole prescription package together, you, you know, the, the injections are coordinated, your monitoring is all put together, you have a single nurse or team dedicated to it, and the whole thing works like clockwork in some places. It happens very, very rarely in cancer, even in very common things like breast cancer. A rare thing like glioblastoma, it's just not organized in any kind of way. I end up, speaking from personal experience, going to the pharmacy when I'm on treatment nearly every day for a different drug or a different dose and getting a different answer and going back and forth. The misery the patients go through in that is the highest form of the misery. It's the administrative thing. It's getting into the clinic. It's getting hold of a doctor. It's getting the pharmacist to return your call. It's getting the occupational, physical, and speech therapy all on board. It takes a huge amount of time and energy for people who don't have any. So that's a policy thing that could be implemented if somebody with almost a, a systems engineering background got down and said, okay, this is the way it ought to happen. You ought to get all your prescriptions at once. Here's a list of appointments you have to make for this. They could be coordinated uh, in such a way that it happens easily. The misery index for patients would go down a lot. And that's a policy thing that could be very rationally fixed. And the amount of money invested in doing that is not the kind of gazillions of dollars you're talking about developing new drugs. Well, I just think it's ironic and sad in a way that we're at a time when the, the science is so spectacular and we're in a, a country where we're still having petty political debates about whether people should be able to get access to affordable health care. Dave said it so, so wisely a few minutes ago, you know, the best way of caring for patients is to care for patients. Well, if the system doesn't allow you to even do that, never mind the fancy precision medicine and the signaling mm -hmm. pathways and all the rest of it, if the basic guts of the system, that is affordable health care for all, is still being debated, then, you know, it's a bit sad. I think as we move into a more regulated healthcare environment, I think, in the United States, which is inevitable, we, we went through a period of time where we were able to spend resources willy-nilly in an unregulated way. I think nobody argues now that there are going to be many consequences to the fact that it's more regulated than it has been, but this has to remain the central mantra if we're going to keep an even keel. The most important thing is quality of life of patients, not the rest of it. 
it's got to remain the most important thing. And if we do that, we'll come out in the next 20 years with a better healthcare system. Dr. David Flockhart is a professor of medicine at the IU School of Medicine. Dr. Eric Meslin directs the IU Center for Bioethics. And that's it for this week's program. You can post comments at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program and chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis. Wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.